electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome to CNBC's continued coverage of markets and turmoil, everybody. And welcome to April, by the way. I am Brian Sullivan, still distancing here. Hope that you and your family are well wherever you may be in the world and the United States. Stocks opening up the month of April on the downside. The Dow falling 973 points. But the real damage was done in the small caps, which got a lot smaller today. The small cap indexes, you name it, you could just throw a dart and hit one. It was down 7 to 8 Small caps, I'm concerned about the domestic economy really taking it on the chin. You also have to look at the big banks. Big bank stocks also in the red. You heard the gang before just talking about it. And also focus on Boeing. Boeing losing another 12 plus percent today. Another very difficult day for Boeing and the airlines in general. And just a reminder, we of course at 5 o'clock will be monitoring that White House coronavirus press briefing when it occurs. If you have market-moving headlines or headlines that you need to know, we will bring you into that as always, waiting for it to begin. Probably will dip in once or twice during the show as well. All right, welcome, everybody. As said, I'm Brian Sullivan, and we've got a great trader panel again for you tonight. We've got Tim, Karen, Dan, and Guy. The gang is all here. And Karen Feinerman, I want to begin with you because I know that we've talked a lot in the past about J.P. Morgan Chase. The move in the markets was probably a little disconcerting. But how did you read the move in the bank stocks today? Well, I mean, clearly it was a painful day for bank stocks. I think, you know, credit is really, to me, the more important factor here, credit and credit quality. And so, I mean, I've been following the high yield index, the investment grade index, and then obviously <clears throat> the banks. I think, um, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll hear from them. I, I, think, I guess it's in two weeks. But I don't know anymore that... Uh, Price to book is really going to be a metric, or price to earnings, certainly not, because I don't think uh, earnings will be anything significant. I'm concerned about credit quality, and I I don't think we'll know. We're not going to know for a while, but it's going to be bad. And so I think we talk about price to book. We don't know what book's going to be, because if the banks have losses, then you're going to be writing down book. So uh, that concerns me. On the flip side, I mean, I think the Fed will do everything that it can to help the banks who are also helping the Fed. But it's, it was an ugly day. However, I had some yeah, other things Dami that were the at- equally ugly. <clears throat> yeah, there was a lot. I mean, we could literally take our pick, Guy Dami, the 10-year at 0.6%. You had the VIX up again, oil down again. What stuck out to you today? Yeah, not a great day. The banks, and you led with that, I think that's the right place to lead because, you know, it felt as if the banks found their footing over the last week or so. So today when you see names down, you know, anywhere from 5 to 7 percent, it's clearly concerning. And I understand what Karen's saying in terms of price to book, price to tangible books, really no way of knowing if they're going to be write downs. I think the good news, if there is good news, is I don't think these U.S. banks, the main ones at least, the ones we talk about all the time, have the exposure to the energy sector that they may have five or ten years ago. So if there's a silver lining, it might be that. But with that said, what stuck out to me today was exactly that. 
the fact that the banks really, you know, they lost themselves today, at least for a day. And the fact that the VIX, although, you know, it had been trending low over the last week or so, or the last couple of days, you know, it's back on its horse again. So it's somewhat disconcerting. Yes, Brian. If you, if, if you look at the markets overall, um, you could get, you know, hey, we've seen this playbook before, small caps, uh, retail stocks. So if you look at the IWM, which measures the Russell, uh, if you look at the XRT, which at least some measure of retail, um, these were leading us down on the way here. These are the ones that gave out today along with the banks. And just, you know, people need to hear some bottom up stuff on companies. And, I, you know, my view on banks right now, based upon credit quality that we're very concerned about and reminding that that triple B tranche, uh, which is three times bigger than high yield, is something that you're expected to see 30 to 40 percent downgrades on. But Bank of America, um, which, you know, you could argue could be a proxy for the entire sector, has about a 1.25 loan loss uh, you know, out exposure here. And if you look at the earnings profile of this bank, and if you look at also net interest margins, um, look, it's no solace that we don't get to normalization until 2022, but, but that's the reality. Um, and the reality is that right now the bank's balance sheets look very, very strong. Yeah, Tim, they look strong for now. But when you think about some of the things that Karen brought up in the credit markets, when you think about where the stress is right now, it's in hospitality, it's in energy, it's in transportation, it's in manufacturing. They have a ton of exposure and they're just basically most exposed to the health of the U.S. and the global economy. So I think, Sully, you know, you just brought it up. You brought up the Russell 2000. I think that is a better lens for getting a sense of what's going on in the U.S. economy right now and the sort of areas that might be um, in most of need of assistance and then stimulus. So to me, you know, I've heard strategists all day uh, today looking for bottoms, looking for what makes a bottom. And let me just tell you, we've been talking about this a lot. Time is one of the most important inputs to finding a bottom. Make no mistake, financial markets globally have crashed from equities to credit to commodities. Um, you know, obviously the dollar has crashed up in a way. It's hovering the Dixie around that 100 level. Um, you know, to me, I just think there's a lot of stresses in the market. There's obviously been unprecedented um, stimulus efforts, monetary, fiscal. And really, until we get this health thing figured out, there is no bottom. There will be no bottom in any of these sorts of markets. So I just think time is one of the most important things um, that investors really need to get comfortable with right now. Yeah, and I think the data from LPL Financial was that the average bear market has a bounce of 14%. If you go back to seven bear markets, go back to 1950. So the, the action that we saw in the market the last, I don't know, you know, five or seven trading days on that sharp move up, that falls right into historical patterns. Let's go back to the banks. Dan, I want to stick with you. I want to play with soundbite from James Gorman, the CEO of Morgan Stanley, on in the last hour, he said the dividends need to be saved because people need the income. Let's listen to this, and then, Dan, I want you to comment. The recipient of the dividends are many times small individuals who own these very large bank stocks all over the country. Uh, to lose that income at this time, I happen to think, would be a very poor thing to do. Yeah, Dan, do you agree with that? Keep the dividend? 
Yeah, for now, and, and, until they can't pay it anymore, until there's other things that are more important to do than pay a dividend. Obviously, this has been a very important part of investing in financial companies' um, cap, capital return. It was one of the things that held them back for years and years after the financial crisis. But again, you know, we need to hear those sorts of confident sort of things from the CEOs of these companies because the worst case scenario would be a lack of confidence, the fear that they're going to cut these uh, dividends, and then investors start selling ahead of it. Yeah, I, I tell you what, Brian. Yeah, you know, I think guy, if you, Dami, if Dan, you know, yep. Sorry. Yeah, Dan was bringing up a good point about the banks here. You know, ultimately, yeah. you don't have uh, high financials, which, which were not giving dividends basically up until about a year and a half ago. They went through their stress test. I don't think Morgan Stanley paying a dividend is like Chevron paying a dividend. That's just my view. But ultimately, <clears throat> banks report in two weeks. We're going to get a lot of insight into their balance sheets. We're going to get a lot of insight into credit exposure. Um, I think certainly what, what I hear Dan saying is time. There's no reason you have to go out and buy a bank today. Um, and I, I do think that part of today's move, though, if you look at it on a market basis, was somewhat self-fulfilling. This was the first day of the quarter. The market had rallied massively. Um, there was terrible news uh, on the coronavirus front. And so banks, people are going to go after them. But you don't have to buy them tomorrow. But they're, they're, they're not blowing up tomorrow. Yeah, and before you get to our guest, Guy Dami, listen, we're all probably talking to people working at banks all day long. I know that I am, both industry contacts as well as just personal friends. And they've launched, and they're doing okay, but you wonder the work-from-home thing, the distancing, how long the banks are going to be able to function, whether it's a commercial bank, an investment bank, if this goes on another couple weeks or maybe a couple months. This is not easy for anyone in any industry. No, and it's clearly not something that you could prepare for in terms of the duration with which this potentially lasts. So I agree with you. And I understand, listen, I get what Tim's saying. I understand what Karen and, 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 and uh, Dan are saying. But, you know, it comes down to this. I mean, and, and this is something I think people should think about. The longer this lasts, you have to ask yourself, with, a, with the U.S. economy 73 percent driven by the consumer, if people learn to live with less, be it by choice or because it's un the unfortunate reality, you know, we might be in a whole new paradigm over the next few years. So I think what the market's trying to do, obviously, over those last couple of weeks is try to figure out, you know, what's the real earnings number and what's the right multiple for a market in an environment that's changing beneath our feet. Yeah. And, Guy, if you figure that out, you certainly let us know. Uh, maybe <laughs> let's bring in a guest who, who does know, and he's well-known to the CNBC audience. And that is David Tice, formerly the manager of the Prudent Bear Fund, kind of stepped away for a while but is now rejoining basically the industry mm -hmm. as the chief investment officer of Ranger Alternative, managing an active bear fund. David Tice joining us first on CNBC. David, we, we appreciate it. Uh, thanks for joining us. I guess welcome back into the full-time world. Um, why come back now? Is it because you see continued declines ahead? You are a noted bear, not entirely, but that has been your sort of, you know, your modus operandi over the last number of decades. Well, glad to be with you, Brian. And I'm really sorry for all the hardship people have gone through with this terrible virus and this terrible bear market that we started. But I'm here to try to talk the truth. I've been out of the game for about 11 years since I sold my fund defederated at the end of 08. And so I've watched it. I've watched the excesses build, and I've watched how we have essentially 
Fed action and suppressing volatility has essentially just created, you know, more and more fragility. And this virus, unfortunately, was the catalyst and has caused bursting of several bubbles. So really, we have the stock market bubble that's been burst. We have a bond market bubble that's been burst. We have the bubble that Trump was easily elected. You know, that's no longer a sure thing. We've had an energy boom bubble that's burst. We have a confidence in Fed in the Federal Reserve. That bubble's been burst. And so I've gotten back into the game joining two very consummate professionals I've had long relationships with that have run this uh, active ETF for a number of years and really done well in protecting investors in bear markets. And it's time for me to uh, put the shoes back on. So how do you see this ultimately with the equity markets, with the bond markets, David, playing out? Well, obviously, nobody knows for sure. But I think uh, lots of people want to believe. And you look at 08, the market went down and it came right back up. We've had a lot of bear markets where the Fed has saved us. Uh, we're now at zero interest rates. We've now had the Fed fire a number of bullets, although they certainly have a lot left in terms of additional quantitative easing and who knows, maybe it's modern monetary theory. But none of those are going to be, you know, a uh, something that's going to save us longer term until unless we end up getting to hyperinflation and the stock markets go up like they did in uh, Argentina. We believe that the magnitude of these overtures from the government and the Fed will not offset the impact of the shutdown. If people are working from home and these businesses are all shut down, that is massive. We have never seen a decline like this before. This is an unprecedented global collapse. And unfortunately, it's going to create some pain. We think it's more likely to be a L recovery uh, rather than a V. We think it's going to take a long time. We don't think there's going to be any parades when Trump says, you know, it's all clear. We think people are going to still save their money. They're not going to rush out to the restaurants. There's not going to be quite as much pent-up demand as people might think. And yeah. although stocks are getting cheaper, you know, earnings are going to go down a lot. Well, they are. David Tice, back at the Ranger Alternatives Chief Investment Officer and the ATGE Inverse Market ETF. David, uh, I guess it was a pleasure to have you on. Um, I'm sure we'll talk to you again soon. Thank <laughs> you very much. Thank you. Karen Feinerman, I want to ask you, you heard what David was saying. Basically, David seemed to be saying what I think a lot of you have said or hinted at over the past few months, which is the market was sort of already on edge a bit. Nobody could have foreseen this coming. But do you agree that, that those things, bonds and certain parts of the equity markets, were in a bubble, Karen, and that this just popped it? I think that's probably true. I don't know how bubblish, but maybe it was, you know, extended to the upside. Certainly some valuations were really extended to the upside. I think so. That was uh, just the fire was already set. It just needed a match. This was a bigger this was a blowtorch. And I, I think th that that he's right about that. I, I wonder, though, I think earnings are going to be terrible. There's no question about that. And they'll be terrible for a while. I had thought it would be a one or two quarter thing. I think it'll be 
longer than that and way longer for, for some other companies. But I think the market ultimately will look through to earnings power in the long term. And you have to be in companies that will be around in the long term. So balance sheets are, uh, balance sheets getting back to credit again, which sort of seems to be the theme. Um, you have to be in companies that have balance sheets that can survive. Yeah, and, and you know, the one thing that we have talked about, Karen's talked about it, but Tim, comment on this, please, is these, some of these bond funds, and I, and I wrote about this, and we've talked about it on the show, these closed-in bond funds. You look at some of these today, they got absolutely walloped again. The, the double-line fund, the DSL, you had PCI, a PIMCO, some of these names got absolutely hit 7 8 9% down today. What do you think the credit market is telling us right now, and how do you think the credit market is doing right now, Tim? All right, no, Tim there. Guy, can you answer the same question? How do you think the credit market is doing right now? Because those, those bond funds that we've talked about, they don't look great. Trying to find its way is the best way I can put it. I, I don't think it's doing particularly well. I think there's some stabilization, but it feels as if, unfortunately, there might be another wave. You know, I think the Fed doing what they're doing, everybody talks about a bazooka. That's true. They also had a bit of a sniper's rifle as well. So it's sort of they're looking at this from all different viewpoints, which is probably right. And I think they're able to stave off potential disaster for a period of time. But, you know, it seems to be falling back in that crevasse. Uh, I think to Dan's point, I think Dan is exactly right. There's no elixir for this other than time. And I think everybody, again, wants this thing to, to go shooting back to the upside and get to levels we saw three months ago. I just don't think that's in the cards right now, Brian. All right, guy down the guy. Thank you very much. Work to get Tim back as well. All right, we have got a lot more. Go ahead, Karen, quickly. I just, you know, Carnival Cruise happened to got, got a bond deal done today, which is kind of amazing to me. It didn't help the stock at all, which got crushed. But the idea that they were able to get that much done in a bond deal was kind of surprising. And it was oversubscribed. Yeah, stock down, what, 30-some percent at one point. I think they had a 12 or 13 percent interest. May attract some buyers. We'll see. All right, we've got a lot more to do on this hour of CNBC coming up. We're going to chat with the CEO of 3D Systems, find out how 3D printing is helped making sure that these critical medical supplies that all the first responders need are getting to where they need to be to help the American public. And, of course, the White House coronavirus press, coronavirus press conference, we are monitoring it. Any key headlines that cross from that, we will bring them to you. We are back right after this on CNBC with the Dow down 973 points today. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link 
your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. All right, welcome back to CNBC, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Let's talk more now about the increase in testing in the United States. More than a million Americans have now been tested. Let's get more now on this, where we stand with Meg Terrell, who's been reporting just excellently on all this the entire time. Meg. Well, thanks, Brian. That million test threshold was surpassed this week, but there is tremendous variability across the United States in terms of how much testing is being done. Take a look at this map we've got of testing being done per capita by state. Now, it won't surprise anybody that New York is at the top of that list. The darker the state here, the more testing per capita that is being done. Washington state also second. That, of course, was the state with the first case in the United States. Louisiana coming in third with the amount of testing being done per, uh, per capita there. And that's as we're seeing New Orleans cases really take off, doubling at a rate of every 2.2 days, according to Evercore ISI. So that's pretty fast. In terms of the states doing the least, Texas, South Carolina, and California. And for California, the problem is a bolus of pending tests, 57,000 tests that it's waiting results on. And what's driving some of these backlogs? Well, there's a shortage in the supplies needed to process tests, including the chemicals and the swabs to perform them, also of the protective gear for people administering the tests. There's also the fact that a backlog was generated in these tests uh, before the capacity really ramped up. So that's something the companies are still working to process. Also, as there are fewer flights around the United States, the samples don't have the planes to get to the labs to be processed. And finally, a more recently approved tests, Dr. Debbie Burks from the White House was saying last night, I haven't been adopted. So people are still sending samples to the same processing systems uh, as they were at the beginning, even though the capacity might be available elsewhere, Brian. So it's just a really clunky system. Some places it's working better than others, but still a huge problem. Yeah, and a, a quick comment and a question. If we were waiting 57,000 tests in California, it sounds like their numbers could spike higher when those results come back. But Meg, maybe you can answer a question that I've gotten just a lot of my friends have texted me about and wondering, if you have a lot of symptoms and you're very ill and you go to the doctor, you can often get tests through these drive-bys. But we seem to be getting people, basketball players, well-known politicians, people that don't have a lot of symptoms that are able somehow to get these tests. How are certain people getting the tests and others waiting? Unfortunately, who you know seems to matter in medicine as much as it does anywhere else. Uh, so, you know, if you're well-connected, you might be able to find a test, whereas if you're, you know, not well-connected, you're waiting in line. And the CDC has issued guidelines for, you know, the people who are the sickest, who are in the hospital, and also for uh, healthcare workers and first responders with symptoms. They are prioritized in terms of getting testing. I think you said it perfectly. Meg Terrell, Meg, be well, you and your family. Thank you very much, Meg. See you soon. You All right, now let's talk about getting more medical supplies out there. We're not talking about necessarily buying and bringing some in. We're talking about making them with 3D printers. Let's bring in now Vilmesh Joshi, who goes by VJ. He is the CEO of 3G, 3D Systems. VJ, thank you very much for joining us here on CNBC. I've seen 3D printers in action 
they're pretty amazing. What medical equipment can you or can people with your products make on a 3D printer? So, you know, we have right now 50 projects going on with hospitals, with NGOs, with private companies doing face shields, you know, the parts for ventilators, even, you know, valves that can be put on a scuba mask to really uh, create a personal protection equipment. So, you know, we absolutely believe that additive manufacturing is the right technology in creating, you know, this uh, particular uh, product that we can help the hospitals, even the ventilator manufacturers. And, you know, if you think about a hospital, so an Italian hospital, you know, told us that, hey, we are running out of the space for our ventilators. Can you make them? They gave us a part at, you know, 11 a.m., and by 5 p.m., we provided 50 parts to them. So, you know, this is just an example of how we can really change the manufacturing aspects of it all the way from design to providing the production parts. Yeah, I mean, and you can move the production on site. I mean, somebody can get a printer, download these files, which basically, in, in a very basic way, VJ, instruct the printer how to make them, right? I mean, we can get manufacturing of these critical products done on site where the patients and doctors are. Yeah, I think that's the power of, um, you know, additive manufacturing. As for example, for New York, you know, for New York Hospital, we printed 200 face shields. So I think, you know, at a point of care, this is where the technology, you know, can be provided. Even if you think about, you know, training the hospital doctors and nurses, so we just introduced a uh, product, which is kind of a module for an ultrasound um, simulator, where, you know, you can train in a safe environment the doctors and nurses on what kind of a COVID-19 lung will look like, because I think... So we are trying to provide technologies not only just for uh, printing, but also for simulation. And how much increased interest are you seeing in your products, Vijay? So right now, as I said, we already have 50 projects that we are working with. We are having uh, ventilator manufacturers. So for example, a ventilator manufacturer in the Netherlands told us that can you make you know 500 parts you're working with big OEMs. So I, I really think that the additive manufacturing value proposition, you know, in really providing this kind of infrastructure is where we shine right now. Vilnes Joshi is the CEO of 3D Systems. His products helping make some of these critical items right on site. Truly amazing to see the private sector and technology step up the fight like this, VJ. Best to you and your entire team there at 3D Systems. Thank you very much for joining us. All right, coming up, pretty much all of you out there are probably Zooming, having Zoom meetings, Zoom cocktail parties. Well, there's a lot of concerns over the privacy now of Zoom. New York's Attorney General sent a letter to the company, and we will speak with her. The New York AG will join us on CNBC coming up in a couple of minutes. And a reminder, we are awaiting that White House coronavirus press conference as well. A lot more to do. Dow down 973 today. We're back right after this. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Shei a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. 
Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. And there is a live look at the White House where we are awaiting the nightly coronavirus press briefing. We'll bring that to you live or at least dip in and out of it, certainly with any key headlines that you need to know about. We're going to be back with more, including an interview with the Attorney General of New York about Amazon and Zoom. All that straight ahead. We're back after this. All right, welcome back to CNBC. We have got some breaking news on Starbucks and their employees. For that, let's go to Kate Rogers. Kate. Hey there, Brian. Well, Starbucks just announcing that it's going to be extending catastrophe pay and other COVID-19 benefits for its employees through May 3rd. Let's take you through what this looks like here. This pay will be for any Starbucks partner who's sick, taking care of someone, is self-isolating and opts to not come to work or chooses to stay home during this time. Originally, this program was intended to be for 30 days, ending near the end of April. Now, those who are healthy and choosing to come to work will receive an additional $3 an hour with service pay. The company also announcing that temporary cafe closures and modified operations will uh, continue through May 3rd. In addition, it'll be sending thermometers to all company-operated stores for those who want to monitor themselves before shifts begin. In addition, Starbucks says it's looking into non-medical-grade mask options for workers, and its foundation, Brian, has donated $3 million so far to response efforts. So a big donation there and some updates for Starbucks workers who are opting to stay home, are sick, are taking care of, of loved ones and partners of their own, and those who are choosing to come in if they're healthy enough to work. Back over to you. All right, Kate Rogers, the breaking news there on Starbucks. Dan, Nathan, I mean, Dan, you could talk about Starbucks fundamentally, but as you've noted, it's kind of hard to know where any of the numbers are going to come in. Let me ask you a question in a different way. Obviously, mom and pop, they're struggling. They can't afford to bankroll this stuff. I get it. But for these large national chains, do you think we're going to have a collectively long memory where, where people, customers are going to say, that company did right by its employees, that company did not, and they could have afforded it? Will that matter when this is all said and done? I think it should. I mean, brand value is an amazingly important part of the valuation in a lot of these companies. Why does Starbucks trade at a premium? Why does Disney trade at a premium? Why does Nike trade at a premium? A lot of that is the obviously the premium product, but also that premium brand. So I think this is a really smart move on their part. I just want to make one other point about Starbucks and its price action. This stock topped out last year at $100, and it sold off to basically 50 at its lows about a week and a half ago. So it had this really sharp bounce. That, pull, that pullback and that bounce is giving you the spot of where to buy this stock. If you're a long-term um, investor and looking to get into Starbucks, that would be around 50 bucks. And, you know, the way the market's going right now, you may get a shot to do that again in the coming weeks or months. Yeah, and I am a long-term investor, Dan. And I, I think, you know, one of the things about Starbucks is do you look at them on a trailing basis at least to understand how cheap the company got? Um, what you just announced, Brian, is, is obviously, and Dan refers to this, this is part of the brand value at Starbucks. 
Um, there's no question Howard Schultz has gone out of his way to be socially responsible. Some people maybe think he's being overly political, but either way, he's taking care of his employees and he's largely taking care of his customers on a trailing basis, 21 times for Starbucks at these levels. Uh, and before this, they had 6% U.S. same-store sales growth. We're starting to get a glimpse into their business in China after they closed 75% of their stores, and that's creeping higher. So, um, yes, a painful time to be a shareholder all over the long term. This company's seen volatility at moments even around earnings, and this is good news. And, Brian, I'll just add one other thing. You know, Dan brings up the $50 level. It's also not coincidental that that's where it traded down and held back in the summer, July of 2018. Obviously, a lot's changed since then, but the level makes sense. In terms of does it matter that they're doing the right thing, I absolutely think it matters, and I hope people do remember when we come out the other side of this thing. I think the concern, if you want to play sort of devil's advocate on the Starbucks side of things, you know, over the course of a few months, will people be conditioned where, you know what, maybe I don't need Starbucks as much as I thought. And that's, again, that has to be a consideration when we get to the other side of this. Consumer behavior, consumer patterns, will they fundamentally change or will people go back to doing what they were doing two and a half, three months ago? I just want to jump in and add that I think that I agree with each of the guys that they are really good corporate citizens, and I do think that really matters to them. It matters to their customers. It matters to their employees as well. And I think when they come out the other side, maybe it trades down. I don't know. I bought some a little lower than here, not, not meaningfully. It doesn't really matter to me. Sort of like Tim, a long-term investor, but I think when they come out the other side, they will have still a very strong business worldwide. And I think that to maybe a little differently than Guy in that maybe this is one of the small things people keep doing. They want to get back to their normal lives. Maybe they do continue to go to Starbucks and forego some of the more expensive uh, items that they might have purchased. So I, I'm long for the long term, and I'd probably be a buyer for traded down a little bit more. Okay, and Dan said you might get a chance to buy it at 50 bucks, half of what it is or what it was anyway from its peak. Uh, by the way, our friend Josh Brown of CNBC wrote a great piece today saying maybe we now remember the importance of brick and mortar stores again when you can't get an online delivery of things you need, but you got people busting their butt, risking themselves, going to stack shelves at night, 11 o'clock at night. We're going to remember that brick and mortar is still very necessary, maybe more than ever. All right, we got a lot more to do here on CNBC's special hour coverage. Uh, the New York Attorney General sending a letter to Zoom, the popular video app everybody seems to be using, worried about privacy. We'll talk about that, we'll talk about Amazon. And by the way, tonight, of course, markets in turmoil. The Dow down another 1,000 points today. That's special tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern time. We're back, though, right after this on Fast Money. Stick around. All right, welcome back to CNBC. Just a reminder, the White House press conference, the now nightly press conference on the coronavirus, expected to begin here. Oh, it is beginning, but if we get any market-making headlines, headlines you need to know, we will certainly bring those to you as well. Have not forgotten about that. But there are so many other things that we need to talk about. And two things that we are all trying to use, or at least have talked about, are Zoom and Amazon. Yet both companies, recent some actions, causing a little concern. Let us now bring in... Letitia James. She is the New York Attorney General. Madam Attorney General, it is a real pleasure uh, to, to have you on CNBC. We appreciate that. I, I want to begin with Zoom because it appears that the entire world, or at least the United States, is now using Zoom, whether it's for work, 
or whether it's for social conversations, you sent a letter to them expressing concerns about privacy. Specifically, what are you concerned about, ma'am? So first, let me thank you for um, allowing me to address your audience. And let me just um, urge uh, all Americans, and particularly New Yorkers, that they should remain calm, that they should stay at home, that they should wash their hands, that they should practice um, social distancing, and that all of us will get through this together as one. So we sent a letter to Zoom with a number of questions, uh, basically to ensure the company is taking appropriate steps to ensure users' privacy and security. Um, we were concerned with regards to whether or not they had taken certain protocols, they had put certain protocols in place. With so many businesses and schools and even government relying on Zoom to move their operations forward, it is vital that we ensure the appropriate safety and security measures are in place. We were contacted by a number of New Yorkers and individuals who are just concerned about their practices. And right now we're just waiting to hear back from Zoom before determining if additional steps need to be taken. Yeah. Do we know, Madam Attorney General, if Zoom is, is recording this for any other use? I mean, kids are using it for class. We're using it for sensitive business conversations. Uh, is this all being recorded and stored by them? Those are some of the questions that we asked as part of our inquiry. So we don't know. We can't answer those questions. And so we are basically a fact-based agency, and it's really critically important that our questions be answered and that consumers know whether or not their privacy and their security is being compromised. And at this point in time, we have not made a determination as to whether or not we will take further action, um, and operations will continue. Um, individuals could, will continue to use Zoom. But it's important that as the chief law enforcement enforcement officer in the state of New York, that we protect the privacy and the, and the security of New Yorkers and all individuals who are utilizing Zoom at this critical time in our country. Okay, I want to shift gears, uh, Madam Attorney General, to Amazon. Amazon uh, recently, a couple days ago, uh, very now sort of I don't want to say famously, but, but it got a lot of publicity firing a gentleman named Chris Smalls. Chris Smalls had organized a walkout with his concern about safety facilities at an Amazon warehouse on Staten Island. Mr. Smalls was laid off. You are now approaching Amazon. Amazon says, and I'll get sort of their statement out of the way first, and then you can comment, ma'am, which is that they didn't fire him because the walkout. They fired him because he had been exposed to a patient who was COVID-19 positive, and therefore they said he repeatedly, effectively violated their physical contact and distancing measures, jeopardizing other workers, and that's why he got fired. Your response to their statement, and what are you going to do with Amazon? So there is a question of fact, um, but their position is somewhat dubious. Chris Malls was an employee at Amazon's warehouse on Staten Island. He organized a walkout to protest the lack of protective measure, measures for workers. Um, there was an individual who had approached him um, who he urged that this young lady go home uh, because she had symptoms uh, that were consistent with the virus. She went to get tested. Uh, she went back to work, um, despite the fact um, that right now there are protocols in place all over this country that individuals who have any symptoms should go home immediately. But she was directed to return back to the facility and exposing the virus to countless number of other workers. Chris, um, in his right mind, decided to uh, organize strikers, in, uh, the employees at the facility. And they were urging Amazon to close the facility 
um, after the worker tested positive for the virus. Now, organizers put the number of strikers around 50, and Amazon obviously Amazon says that it was it was less. Um, Chris was fired on Monday, and Amazon said it was because he had received multiple warnings. There's a serious question of fact, and there's a question as to whether or not he, they violated his rights and whether or not they retaliated against him. And so at this point in time, um, we are engaged in discussions with Amazon, and we will make a determination at some point in the future as to whether or not we will go forward. And I'm considering my office's op- legal options, and I'm also calling on the National Labor Relations Board to investigate this incident. You know, um, this could potentially be a violation of New York's whistleblower statute, which states that an employer cannot take retaliatory action against an employee because he or she discloses or threatens to disclose a policy or practice of the employee that is in violation of the law. You see, here in New York, we recognize the right to organize. And that right to recognize is also recognized on the federal level. And it's important that Amazon understand that if they are going to do operations in the state of New York, they've got to respect the rights of workers. But most importantly, they need to take care. uh, They need to attend to the health and the welfare of their employees. I would also imagine you would agree with this statement, Madam Attorney General, that people everywhere have the right to not pay $100 for an eight-ounce squirt bottle of Purell. I mean, but that's what we saw, particularly at the beginning of this crisis, was third-party sellers, not just on Amazon, by the way, but other sites charging exorbitant amounts for things everybody was desperate for, Clorox wipes, Purell, toilet paper. I know you've talked to Amazon about that. Have they been cooperative on that level? And what can we do about gouging People are out of work. They have no money. And yet products are stupidly expensive in some cases. So we, um, as of this moment, have received over 5,000 complaints related to price gouging. Individuals selling hand sanitizers for $80 to $100. Individuals selling toilet paper for exorbitant amounts of money. Individuals, again, just taking advantage of the fear and the anxiety which continues to exist not only in New York, but all across this country. And it really is unconscionable that individuals will take advantage of, this, of these critical times and take advantage of the fear that people are experiencing now. And so Amazon, to their credit, is not engaging in price gouging. It is, you know, third parties who are using their marketplace. And to their credit, they are working with our office. And in fact, a number of online platforms have worked with our office to remove those posts. We have sent out a significant number of cease and desist orders. I believe at last count it's over 800 mm-hmm. cease and desist on letters to businesses um, to refrain from engaging in price gouging. And we have not taken any action with regards to taking any business to court seeking a temporary restraining order, but we are prepared to do that. But Amazon, again, to their credit, is working with us and they are working with us to remove mm-hmm. the third parties who actually are engaging in price gouging. Let me also go on to say that there's a number of medical scams yeah. that are out there and people should be weary of, and also individuals now taking advantage of the anxiety, the heightened anxiety as it relates um, to uh, scamming people um, on this, uh, related to the stimulus package. Yeah, certainly so. Working with them on one hand and maybe against them on Chris Smalls and the other. You got big jobs there. Letitia James, the Attorney General of New York, ma'am, thank you very much for taking some time for CNBC.
All right, let's get back and, and do a little bit of fast money, shall we? Because let's talk about options traders and how they are betting on one big transport name or a transport theme. My co, what's the options trade here? Yeah, so we were seeing some unusual activity in CH Robinson Worldwide. Now, this is, a lot of people might think of this as a trucking company. It's a logistics company, and it's a third-party logistics company, which means they arrange freight. So they actually contract with basically the trucking companies that ship things. UBS upgraded them today, and the reason they did that is that even though they expect freight shipments to decline, what they're expecting is that the price of trucking is going to go down enough that it might help their margins a little bit. And so we did see some bullish activity in the options market. It traded more than four times. Its average daily call volume, the activity that we saw was a purchase of the April 70-75 call spread. Somebody paid $1.20 for 2,000 of those. That represents 200,000 shares. The buyer of that call spread is betting that CHRW, that's the ticker symbol of CH Robinson Worldwide, could rally 5% or more within the next couple of weeks on the UBS upgrade. Right, Mike Coe looking at C.H. Robinson. Mike, thank you very much. Let's bring in D Dana. If you're still there, I want to talk to you about C not just that, but the trade itself. What do you make of the trade? And also some of these transports. I get it. Global commerce is going to go down. But listen, if you want to get something somewhere, you're going to pay a lot of money to make sure critical supplies go to where they need to go. C.H.R.W. could be a beneficiary of something like that. Yeah, I, I think logistics and the reinvestment in logistics are going to be a real theme that comes out of this crisis. And I also think that a theme that a lot of people are going to be talking about, they were already talking about it during the trade war, but now they're talking about it with the pandemic, is this whole notion of deglobalization. And that's going to change supply chains. It's going to change logistics routes. And I think that there's probably a lot of interesting plays that are going to come out of this as we get into 2021. And, and basically, companies rethink about how they um, supply themselves, how they supply their customers. So I think that's going to be a big, big theme coming out of this situation. Guy Adami, let's get you back in here. You got a transport theme, or is there anything on that side, you know, the Dow theory, if you will, that you are keeping a close eye on? Yeah, I mean, Dow theory, I think, you know, but maybe 100 years ago when I was 17, it made sense. I'm not sure it really holds a lot of warning now. But in terms <laughs> of CHRW, I think, you know, I think that stock just got caught up, and I'll use the word in the maelstrom of the broader market. I think to, to Dan's point and to Mike's options play, I think people are realizing, you know, these logistic companies – actually going to really make a lot of sense going forward. I'm not going to suggest that tomorrow it happens, but, you know, UBS upgraded the stock. I think, what was $75 price target? I mean, this is a name I don't think you buy with impunity, but it actually makes a lot of sense right here. And I know valuations mean nothing right now, but valuations are not ridiculous in a name like this. So I, I like what both Mike and Dan said. Triple, uh, because I think I, I would agree on C.H. Robinson, especially when you look at historically how some of these run into a recession. Remember what transports were doing for the last months, effectively. I mean, they not only the dead water, but they were telling you where the market was going. All right, yeah, I'm having a little trouble there with Tim's feed here. But, Karen, I mean, the idea being is this. It's like... We, we took the supply chain for granted for so long, we never really thought much about what does it take to get something from here to there. A company like a CHRW or Expeditors, which is their, their main competitor, you know, these companies could, to Guy's point, ultimately benefit if people are having to pay a lot of money to get things where they need to go. Whatever the cost is, 
the highest bidder might get under that, that commercial flight, one of the few, by the way, that's still going. Right. I mean, well, one thing also that stood out, I mean, the, last year they had trouble finding drivers. Nobody wanted to be a truck driver anymore. There were so many other better jobs to have. I think that that dynamic has probably changed very dramatically in their favor, um, as well as gas prices. So I think it's sort of interesting. Obviously, when commerce is down, when the GDP is shrinking, um, it's not your first thought, but it makes sense to me. I, I like that idea. And by the way, speaking of gas prices, I'll leave you with this before you go to break. This would be good if we're all on set together. A gas station in Wisconsin posted gasoline, unleaded, for 94 cents a gallon today in the United States. Not a lot of upsides here, but I guess cheap gas, if you say it's an upside, is an upside. 94 cents a gallon in Wisconsin at one station. All right, we're going to take a short break, come back. April obviously off to a weak start. Dow down nearly 1,000 points. But what's ahead for tomorrow and the rest of the week and the year? We'll get your playbook coming up next here on CBC. All right, welcome back. Let's get back down to the markets here. Dan, Nathan, Dan, you, br you brought up something really interesting with our, produce, our production staff today, which is that if you look at the S&P 500, we talk about the weighting all the time, the MAGA stocks, all the big tech stocks. They're sort of the heaviest weighted by far. But you believe they were sort of masking a lot of underlying weakness in the market before this began. How come? Yeah, so, you know, Sully, we started talking about this in late 2018 with the MAGA stocks because they were making an increasingly uh, larger part of the S&P 500. It got as high as about 20% of the weight just a couple months ago here. So it was masking a lot of really bad performance on the way up. But now on the way down, it's actually also masking what I think is better performance for the S&P 500 weighted versus the S&P 500 equal weighted. We have a chart that shows that right now. And the main point there, and we've been talking about this over the last couple of weeks, that Apple is still up 40% year over year from its 2019 lows. Microsoft is still up 30% from its 2019 lows, the 52-week lows. So again, what I'm looking for is I don't want this to happen with Microsoft and Apple, but if you're looking for signs of capitulation, you want to see them accelerate to the downside and at least match those 52-week lows. You know, Guy, there's this huge battle. Everybody says, oh, the pension funds are going to come in and start buying on the rebalancing. But you flagged this yesterday, and I forgot to – I meant to bring it up last night, uh, which is that Norway, the biggest sovereign wealth fund in the world, may face certain types of redemptions, for lack of a better term. How much are the big institutions going to move this needle up or down in the next couple of weeks and months? You have to be concerned. I mean, I don't, I don't think – yeah, I mean, that's obviously a concern. I know a lot of people talked about it. Some people sort of said it's not as big a deal. But you're going to continue to see headlines like that. And just I'll add one other thing because it's worth mentioning as we close the show. I mean, you haven't heard a peep out of Warren Buffett or anybody out of Berkshire Hathaway, which is either a very good sign or a very bad sign. I haven't figured it out yet. You know, maybe he's waiting in the weeds. But I think with <laughs> yeah. each passing day that you don't hear from him, I think the market gets a little more scared. Yep. Uh, yeah, where's Warren? I think a lot of people are asking. Tim, Dan, Karen, and Guy, great stuff there. Again, appreciate it to everybody. Thank you very much for tuning in to CNBC's Fast Money. Of course, the White House briefing is going on, but Mad Money with Jim Cramer will begin right now. We'll see you tomorrow. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Yeah! 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.